This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, Daniela Hernandez-Silva joins me to talk about her Fresh Ed Flux podcast episode, which aired last week. Spoiler alert, we talk about her Flux episode in depth in today's show. So if you haven't already listened to her Flux episode, I recommend that you hit pause now. It's best if you listen to her show before continuing with this episode. In our conversation today, Daniela details how podcasting allowed her to combine her creative and academic sides into one. She also provides additional context in education in rural Colombia. She says that the Escuela Nueva model of rural education, which was the focus of her episode, has had a lot of success increasing access to education across Colombia. But, she argues, it does not fit the country's context today. Either the model or the context needs to change. I think even though we can perceive that this model has been successful because it has helped to increase the coverage rates incredibly in Colombia, when we talk about quality and when we talk about what is happening nowadays in our schools, and even more so if we include COVID situation, we can we can realize that that here is just not working the way it is supposed to be working. Daniela Hernandez Silva recently finished her Erasmus Mundus joint master degree in education policies for global development. She is the first Fresh Ed Flux fellow to air her episode. Daniela Hernandez Silva, welcome to Fresh Ed. Oh, thank you, Will. Thank you for inviting me. And congratulations on your Flux episode. It was absolutely amazing. Well, thanks. And, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to explore my ideas and, <laughs> and for the amazing team, honestly. It, it has been a great journey. And I, I feel like I know you so well already. And so this is a bit strange to sit down with you for an interview. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, for audience members, please bear with us a little bit as we go through our yeah. conversation, because it feels like I'm talking to an old friend since Danny has been working on Flux for nearly eight months now, I think it is. Yeah, since October. Yeah, maybe November. October. So can I ask, I guess, Danny, why did you even apply for Fresh Ed Flux? What was your motivation? I think I was moved by the fact that I knew I had so many results of my previous fieldwork that I really wanted to disclose and I didn't know how. And I saw a window there, like, yeah, maybe there is a space where I can expose it. And I really liked that in the application it said, I don't remember exactly what something like that they were you were looking for people to expose results in a different way or to be creative or something like that, hmm. that I was like, yeah, I want to do that. I was also being uh, sort of very tired of the academy of writing papers, very, very structured papers, hmm. uh, because I felt that I cannot express all the things that I found or that I could analyze in those structures, in those written structures. So I, I thought that that would be nice. And, and then I remember that when doing the, the actual recording for applying, I realized that I could also mix uh, like music and sounds and recording and post-production with it. 
And I was like, yeah, I, I, I never thought that it could be possible to combine music, my, my passion for music, for sounds, and my academic research. So I think it was just a great, great decision. Did you have any experience mixing audio before you applied? Not the way I did. I mean, I, mm. I tried to play the bass. Uh, I kind of sing. So I'm very familiar with, with music. I think I'm a very good listener. I'm super into sound. And sometimes some things that I, that I mm. played, I recorded. I was familiar, for example, with GarageBand but never with Pro Tools and never in a, in a very, you know, formal yeah. uh, way of cutting the voice and like making a whole post-production. No, not at all. I still remember your submission when you applied to Flux because you did add music into the audio submission and it was like you were telling this story to us in and you only had two minutes if i recall yeah, yeah. and I, and we were just absolutely amazed when we heard that and we just said we have to we have to work with her yeah i remember that that i thought okay they are asking me to talk about myself and and i really wanted to include the bass i love the bass and i feel that it's a it's an instrument that i don't know i, I think it represents me in a way and it talks about my way of being, I, I would say. So now that it's been, you know, in a sense, you've completed the fellowship because you've now aired your episode. What was the experience like? I think it was a great experience and a very, very new one for me. So I think it was great to receive feedback. I would, I would definitely say that about this experience because I think it's the first time in my life that I feel that I actually know what it is to work with great feedback and how, you, mm. how much you can grow super fast. So I think like in six months, it was not just that I produced something, but that I grew professionally um, just by listening and receiving excellent feedback given by the team. Mm. So I think that was a great takeaway from this experience. In what ways do you think you've grown? Like what, what parts of you have grown? So I think because of the podcast includes so many different layers. I see it that way. Mm -hmm. So every layer has a whole history and a whole process behind. So for example, to learn how to properly use Pro Tools or to make post-production or to edit voices or to record voices or to improve a recording studio in my closet. You know, that's <laughs> something that I didn't know how to do. And also if we talk about the content, all the support that Joe gave to me was amazing. All her comments, all her inputs, her feedbacks. And the fact that I was able to include another literary genre as magical realism is, I, I never wrote something like that. I had just ideas in my mind, but never wrote something like that. And writing that is an extremely different process than just writing an academic paper. So I felt that I learned a lot. And yeah, so just also when seeing the result and, and seeing how many things are possible to obtain when when just letting your heart to, to flow in your ideas. It's, mm. it's amazing. 
it's it is quite interesting how you've you combined what you said about five years of ethnographic fieldwork in rural Colombia, visiting countless schools and talking with countless people, but you combined it with that literary form of magical realism, and and you were able to do that in the script really beautifully. What about the audio? Like, did the podcast give you an opportunity to express your ideas in in ways that the written word wouldn't allow you to? Yeah, definitely, yes. So I think that my feeling before doing the podcast was that every time that I wanted to expose a result, it was with my mind, right? I write with my mind. Of course, I can put my heart in a way, but it was mainly a way of finding a, a voice that is legitimate. That's why you need to have this structure and to use this data and to use a lot of percentages and to quote and to, you know, this is how you try to legitimate your work. And I feel that by doing that, I was just working with my mind, but that was something else, something beyond that, that I that I experienced in my field words. Mm. And it was a lot of heart, not just mind. It was a lot of tears, a lot of, you know, emotions, a lot of things that were happening and, and that I knew that even if I wrote them, were not going to be taken into account the way and, and in the dimension that it has. Mm. So I think this podcast and, and exploring the sound as a way of exposing the results was, was amazing in the way that it was not just trying to explain, but to sharing what I felt when I was there. And I feel that feelings are something completely underestimated. And not just the feelings that I can feel when listening to them, but also the feelings that they can express through their stories and through the subtext of their stories, the hidden characters, right? Mm. The trauma, the memories that they have. Those things have a huge weight on their perceptions, on their decisions. Mm. And I thought, and I always thought that that should be given the importance that it has in order to make, for example, I don't know, policy decisions. And and that's something that is very hidden in, in the academic world. A lot of those stories and the memories come through the character of Jose in your podcast. How did you even come up with having a composite character, having a character comprised of all of the different voices you heard during your ethnographic fieldwork? How did you even come to that idea and conclusion that that's what you wanted to do in a podcast? So I have to say that before doing this, I didn't even know that this was called doing a composite character. Uh, I just, it was very naturally decided because mm. I think it was my way of doing ethnography. I think it was the way I always saw how ethnography works and how my writing worked. So I always thought that when writing, I was trying to combine all the stories and try to find trends and try to give a voice through my voice to the many voices that I have heard. So, so when thinking about this and, and when doing a lot of interviews, but honestly, a lot. Like how many? I don't know. It took me like five years, maybe more than, 
more than 500 for sure. So wow. there is a point where you can have this voice in your head, right? And, right? and for me, it was so clear to have one voice of their voices that it was almost of this composite character already existed. And then it was incredible, the process of writing, because I remember talking to Joe and saying, like, I feel crazy because I know Jose wouldn't say this. I know he, would, he wouldn't find an easy way to talk to me about this. And it's like the process for me, to me, of doing ethnography itself. Hmm, hmm, I love it. It's just, it's a really fascinating methodological insight that you've combined between sort of ethnography and audio podcasting. And it's just, I think there's a lot more to explore, you know, going forward. But I, w- I want to ask a little bit about Jose himself as a person, um, uh, because his voice is just so incredible <laughs> yeah. on the podcast. How did you find him and how did you work with him to record that voice? So... Uh, Jose is the character, right? And then Pablo is the one that recorded his voice. Mm. So Pablo used to be one of my students when I was a teacher. Oh. Uh, I was a first graders teacher. And when he was seven years old, six years old, he was my student. And he was amazing. He was amazing. Mm. He has like, you can tell this great gift of doing things with his voice, he's super smart. So when doing this, I couldn't imagine this with other voice that wasn't him because I felt that he could very, very well represent the personality. I mean, Jose is still a character and mm. and he has his own personality. And, and I think Pablo did that great voice just getting into into Jose. He, he asked me questions and he explored a bit about the character and he found an accent to, to be similar to those uh, areas. And, and we worked on it together and he had very clear in mind that it was going to be a character and he helped me also to be as a kid, right? So I remember that we, when we were recording, he was like, no, teacher, I wouldn't say this. I would say it better like that. And I think that's, that was amazing also to come with his inputs and his talent. I mean, that, that brings up a really interesting point about writing for children. You know, it's hard yeah. as an adult to give voice to children. So it's having Pablo give you his insights into how Jose should speak or would speak, you know, just made it so authentic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's also my feeling of respecting, like deeply respecting others' voices. I feel mm. that. So I really tried to to be as, as close as possible to their reality and to their perception. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that was an an amazing process. And the, the outcome, I mean, it's just incredible to hear Pablo's voice on the podcast. What about in the beginning of the episode, there's sort of old Pablo talking. Um, where did that narrative come from? So that it's the only part of the entire podcast that is not a composite character, is an actual interview that I had. It's hmm. an extract of an actual interview. 
uh, in the voice of Pablo's dad. So this was um, one of the people that, that I interviewed. He's, uh, he's from, from a very, very remote rural area. Hmm. And he was telling me these, these things. And then he was not the only one. And when I realized that I really wanted to, to share this very small extract of a real life experience in his own words, although I put it in English uh, to make it more understandable and to make it more into the flow of the podcast. But it's mm. important that all the audience know that no one there speaks in English and that guy didn't speak in English and, and all everything happened yeah, in Spanish in the field. I mean, and that, that, that opening story is just so incredible when you stop and really listen to what, what um, Jose, the character, is saying. You bring up this issue of Spanish and putting things into English. Obviously, Fresh Ed is an English yeah. language podcast, so thank you for doing it in, in English for our listeners. But you actually, you do more than that. It's not just that you put things into English because there's so much Spanish that you hear Jose's saying. So how did you sort of come up with this idea of your approach to translation? I mean, I am super passionate about methodologies. I love methodologies. I love the content. I love studying rural education. But as I'm passionate about rural education, I'm passionate about methodologies. And I spent a lot of time thinking about ways of improving my methods, my research methods, of ways of being more, less biased, let's say. Mm. And, and so I think that I got to the conclusion that for me, applying some methods, qualitative methods of research and then writing and analyzing the text, it was pretty much an exercise of translation. You have a fact and then you translate it into your interpretation. And then that interpretation goes to another way of translation towards an analysis or a conclusion. Mm. So yeah. I think we have a lot of processes of translation during the act of doing research. And I think it was so clear in my mind that when doing this, and also with the desire of clearly differentiate what I was saying from what he was saying and the fact that all that I was saying was just an interpretation and not necessarily what is there. It just come together and it was just a result of all those things. Another thing that I, I think is very important is that methods are not just one chapter talking about the structures of the paper, right? To me, methods are something that should be embedded, should be transversal to all the research, all the analysis, mm -hmm. all the result. And to me, it was very important to, to make it clear during the entire process and to remind during the entire process that all that they were listening and concluding was being part of a method that I decided to use in order to interpret what he was saying. So I think that's, that's good to know because you can be more aware of, you know, what I'm mm. saying is not necessarily what he was feeling, but it was what I understood of how, what he was saying. And I think it's important to, to remember that in the entire process of 
of understanding a research of mm. someone else. It, it's so fascinating because what you end up what you ended up doing was creating, in a sense, three different characters. Right, you are playing in a, in a way two characters. One character is the sort of internal monologue yeah. that you're having while listening to Jose, and then the second character is sort of the the narrator, the voice who's speaking out and or even writing on paper as you've sort of played with um, in the podcast. And then, of course, the third character is Jose, who actually is an embodiment of you know. 500 characters um and so it's a really fascinating sort of setup that you've created and and i guess one of the things i wonder with the translation since i don't speak spanish but are there moments where your reflections on what's being said in english different from what jose is saying in spanish or or is there sort of are, are there bits in Spanish that just don't actually get sort of picked up in that reflection in English? I think all that I say in English, it's what I interpret from what he says, that's for sure. Mm. But also I think that there are some other hidden interpretations that maybe a Spanish speaker could get better. For example, yeah. in things like the accent, or in things that you can you can sort of feel his habitus, Jose's social personality, Jose's positionality too, in mm. his tone, in his, for example, there is this part when he talks in the same sentence and he mixed, then I don't know how to explain this in English, but it's like saying <laughs> tú and then saying usted, which tú is like very personal, familiar, and then mm. usted is a very formal way. And, and people in the rural areas usually tend to mix them both. And it's quite particular of their accent and in their way of speaking. So if you can understand what he's saying beyond the text, it's like, oh, you can, you can tell that he, he's speaking in a different way, right? And even more if people from Colombia can listen to this, well, they will get even more, more troves. Here. Oh, really? So there, there are certain ideas and sort of themes that come through that are p potentially only going to be picked up by people that really know Colombia well. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, in the accent, in the expressions. When my family listened to it, they laugh in some parts because they know that there are some expressions that are like very cute in a kid, like that are like from the rural areas. I mean, I, it's, I'd love to hear from some listeners, I think, who are bilingual or who have spent time in Colombia and get their feedback because it's sort of, this is what makes your podcast so exciting is it's not only layered in terms of so much sound that you're playing with and you know you put together really masterfully but there's so many layers in terms of what we'll understand and so for english speakers who don't speak spanish who don't know much about colombia we will understand it in one way but someone who does speak spanish probably will understand it in another way and then someone that really knows colombia and rural colombia they'll probably understand it in yet another way and so i mean it's just it's a really interesting piece that that i hope listeners will listen to again and again and sort of unpack everything that you've put into it yeah so i want to turn 
to a little bit about the content of your story because you're you're doing some interesting things when it comes to Escuela Nueva, the rural education sort of model that was implemented in Colombia. Um, could you maybe just give us a brief overview of what Escuela Nueva is and then, you know, what your, in a sense, your critique of it or the critique you were trying to make through the podcast? Sure. So very briefly, Escuela Nueva is a model of education. So it started at the end of 19th century in Europe, and it started for wealthy people. And it was a very exclusive model of education. So it, it, it started hmm. as, let's say, an alternative way of teaching that, that questions traditional uh, learning spaces. So that's why its main component is to be a multi-grade uh, system of education. Because as the word says, there are like different levels, different grades in the same classroom. So we have one classroom with first graders, second graders, third graders, and so on, depending on the school. So that's like the core. And it had like a few pedagogical strategies that were part of this model of this core, which was, for example, implementing learning by doing activities, or they were against, let's say, a shared goal of the curriculum. They were a very, they, they tried it to, to offer a, a personalized education based on the interests and the speed of every student, which differs, of course, from traditional schooling. Hmm. Well, I mean, all of these implied, of course, a new, a new role for teachers in this model, because being a traditional teacher, you cannot... You cannot have all elementary school in one classroom. So they they created tools for teachers and they gave this role of more like being facilitators than, than teachers that give an instruction, right? They were like more supported on, on booklets, on hmm. activities, and they had something very important uh, that is transversal content. So this transversal content means that you have one topic and you develop the same topic in different levels, depending on the grade of the, the student, right? So that was the model uh, that was created in Europe. And that is not necessarily the model that has been implemented in Colombia. In Colombia, it was implemented since, hmm. since the 70s. Um, and of course, in every country. I mean, every country has like tried to appropriate and try to implement that in their context mm -hmm. and it suffered changes, I guess, depending on the structural conditions of it. So my critique, I would say, is not necessarily against the model. To me, Escuela Nueva as a model is just that. It's, it's a set of strategies. I think is not good or bad. I think it works under certain circumstances as it is. But in Colombia, and this is my critique, I think mm, we don't have most of the structural conditions to make the model work as it should be working. Hmm. And so I think um, 
even though we can perceive that this model has been successful because it has helped to increase the coverage rates incredibly in Colombia, when we talk about quality and when we talk about what is happening nowadays in our schools, and even more so if we include COVID situation, we can, we can realize that, that here is just not working the way it is supposed to be working. Mm-hmm. So I think we have conditions such as infrastructural conditions that are structural conditions from our country. We don't have roads to, to remote areas. We don't have connection. We don't have internet. We have also social structures that doesn't help. For example, insecurity, right? You cannot have computers or televisions inside the classroom because they they are going to be stolen. Or the fact that we are a very centralized country that doesn't help either Hmm. to promote things in rural areas. And, And I think the main thing is that we in Colombia still have a general traditional system. And the only alternative system is this uh, implementation of Escuela Nueva models in rural schools. So we are trying to, to insert an alternative model in a very, very traditional system. And we try to evaluate and to coordinate and to give resources to this alternative thing from a traditional mm. way of mm. functioning. And so it's not working. Uh, is definitely not working, in, especially in the remote areas. In your episode, you, you know, Jose struggles with being recruited by, I, I think it was sort of guerrilla groups in some yeah. r- remote areas. And so is that another structural condition that is oh, yeah. sort of preventing, you know, the development of schools, that, and as you said, the quality of education perhaps? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of structural conditions, mm-hmm. cultural conditions, historical conditions. Mm-hmm. And if we talk about history of Colombia and like history that comes until today, we talk about war and we talk about a lot of different forces that operates in the rural areas. Unfortunately, we don't have just regular rural problems. We have a lot of things happening in the rural areas because we are a very centralized country. So we can say that there are a lot of remote areas that have not a clear presence from the state. And so we have, like, as I say in the podcast, like the military forces, we have guerrilla groups, we have drug traffickers, cartels, all operating in the same area. And it's usually in the remote areas. And the schools are there, you know, because the schools... Mm. Are, are a hub of kids, of new generations, of, of teenagers that are also deciding what to do with their lives. And so it's like a fight of forces sometimes. And you can, you can, you can tell just by listening to the teachers' stories, mm-hmm. uh, all the things that they have to struggle to, to do. Most of the teachers have to, in those areas, to end up living inside the school. So there is like a lot of things happening uh, that are structural, that mm-hmm. are not necessarily about the model. But then the thing is that this is what we have. This is the resource that we have to reach those new generations, to reach changes, to reach peace. And if it's not working, 
we I think we whether change the social conditions mm -hmm. or we think something that could fit better in the structural conditions that we have in either of both ways, but just pretending that something is working just because the schools remain open, it's a danger for the future of the country. Hmm. It's a really interesting sort of analysis of what's happening. And, and I, I just keep thinking back to your podcast because you show all of that, right? I, listeners sort of are trans, sort of moved into those spaces in rural Colombia. And, you know, I, I, I feel like I know Jose as a person yeah. <laughs> listening to your podcast. And, and I, you know, and I just, I feel for him being a young male, being recruited, you know, by the drug cartels or the mili the guerrilla groups, whatever it is. And also knowing that he didn't have his family moved to um, the city. And so he was living with his grandmother. And so he, you know, he just sort of embodied all of these structural conditions and these constraints and, you know, what it meant for education to give him a better life chance and realizing that he might not actually get it. Yeah. And it was just sort of deeply sad in a way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I like to be optimistic, honestly. I try to. But it is very, very hard. And that's when I'm talking about feelings because it's mm. very hard to be there and to realize that it is very likely that there is not a happy ending for him and for thousands. We are not talking about 10 kids and even 10 is important, but we are talking about thousands that are in the same mm. position as Jose is. And, and to know that, I mean, of course everything could happen. But we can, and we can talk about the 1%, this 1% school that is working. That's good. I mean, there is one school. That's good. 0.01% of students made it to higher education. And it's like, yeah, you made it. But that's not the common reality mm. of, of what their life end up being. Danny, you, you brought to life a story and a context that is just, it's just was amazing how you did it. I mean, it was a real sonic journey and, and you should feel really proud of what you've created because it is just absolutely amazing. Thank you. What is next in store for you, Danny? Where, where to after this episode? Well, I think this topic has been not just like my master thesis topic, but my I would say professional and personal goal of life topic. And so I've been doing this independent research for five years and I don't want to stop now, right? So I definitely want to continue working on this, but I want to start using this for the people and, for, mm. and, and maybe to think about the changes that could be proposed. I am not completely sure with certainty what is going to be next. I'm just going to graduate from my master's this year and and then I'll I'll see if I can continue with this project within the academia or within an organization that's not clear to me yet but I think my goal is to continue in this in this topic well Daniela Hernandez Silva thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed thank you for being the first flux fellow to finish her episode and just keep us updated with where you end up. 
Thanks, Will, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to explore these things because it would have been literally possible without you and the team, of course. So thank you. Thank you. Daniela Hernandez Silva created the podcast called Defying the Odds in Rural Colombia as part of her Fresh Ed Flux Fellowship. And she recently finished her master's degree in education policies for global development. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Lushi Guaba, Fatih Akhtas, Ng Jung Cho, Obafemi Ogunle, Diang Jian, Annabella Afro-Boteng, Anya Lin, and Phyllis Che Mensa. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the Shock Dev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.